Morning BCC, it's Pastor Nick, and we're continuing today in our Beatitudes Attitude series. Uh, and this morning, it's part two. And I'd like to open my message uh, to us all today with a story. Uh, back when I was in primary school, uh, I had a friend called Graham. And uh, one day, Graham impressed us all in the class by bringing in his collection of rare coins. And we all kind of gathered around and had a look and we were really impressed. And because I was Graham's like special and close friend, I persuaded him that it would be a great idea if he lent me some of his uh, rare coins so that I could take them home uh, and enjoy showing them to my mum and dad. So he let me do that. He was trusting and he was kind and uh, he lent me the coins and I took them home. And then I did something that I've always regretted uh, from that day to this. I actually kept them. Uh, now, I, I can hear the shockwaves going around the church. What a dreadful thing to share. Uh, when I, you know, practiced my message in front of Chloe and she heard this, she went, what? Uh, you know, this is not a good thing. And uh, just bear with me, though, on the story, because there's more to the story. Uh, let me share the whole story with you. Um, I would like to say there's a couple of unpleasant characteristics in there. Uh, you will, you'll spot them straight away. But uh, the first one, <coughs> the first characteristic is, uh, you know, if you borrow something off a friend, you really do need to return it straight away. Uh, that's really important. Uh, you're gonna lose friends really fast if you don't do that. Um, I think the second thing is that that particular episode showed in me that I have a bit of an unpleasant or an ugly characteristic of being drawn to rare things. You know, like if there's a rare car or a rare stamp or perhaps a rare edition of a book is being sold at an auction, there's something quite ugly that rises up in me and, and I want it for myself. You know, it's, it's not a great characteristic. It's a grasping sin. Um, and it's something I manage and I, you know, maybe you can pray for me about that, but you know, that is not an, a nice characteristic that I have and I have to watch that in myself. Um, back when uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy came out on film, I think the second film shows uh, that hobbit, Deogol, finding the ring of power at the bottom of the river. And uh, he dives down and he gets the ring of power and he's delighted to get it. And then his brother, Smeagol, kind of is really jealous and really envious of that ring. Now, now I'm not saying I'd, I'd commit murder, definitely not, but there's a part of me that really understood how Smeagol felt, and that's not a pretty part of me, uh, and I openly admit that, and I, I keep away from that kind of area as much as I can. Although I do say, I will admit that I'm uh, all over Antiques Roadshow like a rash still. Uh, I like Antiques Roadshow, and nothing delights me more uh, than when the expert is sitting there at the table and they bring their synopsis and their evaluation to a conclusion and they say, now, madam, you are going to have to insure this watch for at least, and there's a pause, and then he says, or she says, a hundred thousand pounds, and then there's a gasp of appreciation around the table. I'm all, I just think that's incredible. I love all of that, and I, I'm a bit of a, an, uh, you know, an antiques roadshow uh, addict, so I watch it. So that's the um, that's the maximum amount of permission I give this uh, unpleasant tendency uh, in myself. So let's get back to Graham and the story. So I go into school two or three weeks later and everybody's working, you know, during the day, all the kids are working at their desks. And uh, then I notice at the front that Graham is sobbing by the teacher quietly. And the teacher calls me over and she says to me, uh, Nicholas, I think you've got some coins that belong to Graham. And I'm a bit shocked. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I have. And then, oh yeah, I didn't return those. And I, and then I'm inside, I'm like, actually that's stealing. And then I, I say to Graham and to the teacher, oh, I'm so, so sorry, I'll bring those back tomorrow. 
And that's exactly what I do. I bring them back, I write him a little card, I say that I'm sorry, but do you know what? That friendship cooled right off after that. Uh, the impact of my stealing my friend's coins changed our friendship forever. And uh, that is not something I'm proud of. And uh, that's not the kind of person I want to be. It wasn't the person I kind of wanted, I wanted to be then. And I notice in myself that there's a tendency to sin in me that that produces things that I don't want now. And I work hard and I keep on my toes to make sure that I'm not that kind of person now. So we're, we're looking at the, the second beatitude in a, in a series of beatitudes uh, from uh, Jesus's major sermon uh, that he gives to us uh, in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. And uh, uh, you may remember we opened last week uh, by trying to understand what a beatitude meant. Um, and a beatitude means uh, like a state of great blessing, or it means one of the eight statements that Jesus opens this amazing sermon with, with the words blessed are. Uh, and so there are eight of these, and we're going to look over the next few weeks at what these eight statements actually mean and what they might mean uh, for our lives. Um, so Jesus goes up on a mountain, he teaches the crowd and his disciples, and he opens this amazing message with these, these statements, blessed are. And we tried to understand last week when we opened the series, well, what does blessed mean? It comes from the Greek word makarios, um, and it means a state of blessing that's been brought on us by God uh, for each of the attributes that Jesus describes. Each beatitude is a state of well-being in relation to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus's ministry around these areas uh, that Jesus identifies. So we're going to look uh, this morning from Matthew 5 verses 1 to 10, but with a particular focus on the second beatitude. So why don't you uh, open, your open your Bibles, open up your devices, um, <coughs> excuse me, take a look with me um, at, at uh, the Beatitudes again. I'm just going to read those uh, right from the beginning again. So, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. We're just at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today, we're going to focus in on just Matthew 5, verse 4. And this says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, now, at first, at first sight, it seems as though Jesus is saying that when you are grieving the loss of someone, then God reserves a, a special comfort for you uh, in those circumstances of loss. Uh, that's what it, it looks like at first, doesn't it? You know, and ministers uh, and pastors, when they're preparing a message, they'll often turn things over and over in their mind as they begin to approach a message. And they're going to consider carefully what it is that they want to bring out of the teaching that the passage has. So when I first read this, I started to think about, well, there is the incredible compassion of Jesus. 
for instance, for for that time when uh, his friend Lazarus died and the impact of Lazarus's death upon Lazarus's friends, and it really moved Jesus so much. And uh, in fact, that gave rise or gives rise to the shortest verse in the Bible, uh, uh, where it says Jesus wept, and that's strong and clear evidence for the incredible compassion that Jesus has uh, in those really difficult situations of loss. I was going to talk a little bit about that. (coughs) I was also going to talk about how God knows just what it is like to lose someone uh, and to to have to watch them uh, suffer terrible things uh, and and how painful that must have been uh, for God in watching Jesus go to the cross. I was also then going to go on to describe how our God is a God of restoration and comfort who overcomes death and how heaven is a place in which every tear is wiped away and we will know no more sorrows. You know, these are all true things. And that's where I was originally going when I first read this beatitude and started to think about it. And I'm sure that there's a few of us who have looked at this beatitude and thought, wow, that is just so, so nice of you and so loving of you Jesus to say this about when we're grieving that God will bring comfort and he he absolutely does but that is not what this verse means here is what Matthew 5 4 means in a single sentence our sin should lead to mourning and sorrow and a longing for God's forgiveness and healing that's what it means so the spiritual emotional relational or financial loss, uh, the impact of that that results from our sin, our wrongdoing, should lead to a deep sorrow, tears even, and then God will bring his comfort. That's what this verse is teaching, and that's exactly what I'm saying. So just as the first beatitude is to do with the realization of just how spiritually lacking we are, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, so the second beatitude is all to do with the realization of just how sinful we are and that if we are grieved and upset at our sin then God's blessing steps in to provide comfort and relief from that grief as we genuinely grieve the wrong things that we have done. You know I I had really upset my friend Graham by effectively stealing his coins. Now I know I returned them but the trust was broken, the sin had caused some damage uh, in that relationship. Jesus is teaching in this beatitude that I need to see and feel the impact that my sin can have on the world around me, on my friendships, on my relationships and on God, and that I need to be deeply sorry about that. In other words, as I realize those losses and I'm deeply upset about it, I need to be mourning in a way that's appropriate to the crime, as it were. And then, and only then, Jesus is saying that God will bring comfort over us into that situation. So why does it mean this? Why does it not mean the grieving of the loss of a person? Well, to explain that, I need to take you back to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. 700 years or so before Jesus comes along, (coughs) excuse me, Isaiah prophesies that God's spirit is upon his servant. Uh, He writes this. Uh, So you can pick this up with me in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah writes this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion to be, uh, to pro- sorry to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair that's Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 <coughs> to 3 now Isaiah may well have been writing about himself in the human as God's prophet at the time but he is also definitely pointing forward to Jesus as the Messiah who is to come, as I say, 700 years later in the spirit. He's, he's got that inspiration from God to write those words and it points forward to the arrival of Jesus. And this is one of those Old Testament prophecies that Jesus clearly shows was referring to himself as he launches his ministry. In fact, Jesus' very first sermon after being tempted in the wilderness by the devil uh, for 40 days is to read this passage in Isaiah 61 in the synagogue one morning in front and then and then basically standing in front of the crowd and saying today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing Jesus is saying I am the person that Isaiah was referring to from Isaiah 61 Jesus is the one with the spirit of the Lord upon him he is the anointed one he is the one to come and proclaim the good news to the poor and can you see the echo of this in the first beatitude that we looked at last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making an echo to that, that, to that scripture. Jesus is the one sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring comfort to all who mourn. Uh, he is the one who brings the oil of joy instead of the, uh, the ashes of mourning. And you can see here too that there is a connection from those words to the second beatitude blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted so as we look at the mourning and the sorrow that jesus is describing in this second beatitude we've got to ask ourselves well what kind of mourning was going on in the time of isaiah to bring out the full meaning so that we understand what jesus's teaching has got reference to because he is making an echo and he's making a reference back to that prophetic scripture in Isaiah 61. So let's do a super quick history lesson of what was going on at the time of Isaiah. Well, the people of Israel have fallen away from God and they have become immoral idol worshippers. That's what's been going on. And God calls Isaiah to become a prophet, to speak to the people uh, as his prophet and to call them back to himself. But they don't really listen. And God has to then resort to foreign powers and foreign rulers to chastise the people and to bring them into line. We see in Isaiah 10, he uses the kingdom of Assyria as a rod to chastise them in their own land. Then he uses uh, the kingdom of Babylon to take them out of the land. and, And that's referenced in Isaiah 39. And then finally, once they are broken by their suffering, God uses Cyrus, king of Persia, to restore them back to the land and we see we hear about that in Isaiah 44 and so it's out of these kind of successive waves of discipline at the hands of these foreign kings and superpowers that a genuinely sorry people emerges 
Isaiah then describes how God feels about that whole situation. Uh, back in Isaiah 57, we hear him writing down what God is saying. God says, I will not accuse them forever. This is the people of Israel. Nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners. So, Israel's mourning and sorrow has come about at the stark realization of their own sin and wrongdoing individually and, and at a national level. And this is being called out by Isaiah. And then this second beatitude from Jesus, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, is a direct reference at and echo back to the very same comfort that God wants to bring to people in Isaiah's day after that very hard time away from God as a result of all that personal and national sin. So what does this all mean? Well, by referencing back to Isaiah 61 and the morning that is described there, Jesus is teaching us that as we come to a realization of the devastating impact of our own sin, that we should mourn that really deeply. It should bring us to, a, to tears, it really should. And we should have real sorrow over that. And you know, we all have a tendency to minimize sin, all of us do. You know, I'm sure it won't have passed you by that I open my message today with, uh, uh, you know, perhaps a more gentle story about sin from my own history to give us a kind of a a foothold and, a, and an understanding of the principles here. But in truth, we all, myself included, carry around a large back catalogue of sinful behaviours uh, for which we should be genuinely and truly sorry. I got a challenging question for us all this morning. When was the last time the realisation of your own sin cut you up inside so much that you were desperate enough to cry about it? Sin is truly destructive to everyone and everything around it. Uh, you know, this weekend, um, you may have seen some of the documentaries and the interviews uh, that mark 20 years uh, yesterday since the, the world's worst peacetime terrorist atrocity, 9-11, uh, when hijackers used plane to uh, attack uh, and, uh, and wreak carnage uh, over in the United States. They reckon it was a group of only 19 people who masterminded it all. And if you ever needed an illustration to show you what sin is like, surely 9-11 uh, is about as graphic as it's going to get. What happened on that day 20 years ago is a stark wake-up call to what in truth we are all capable of if we allow ourselves or if we don't have God to guide us or if we don't have Jesus to inspire us we don't have the Holy Spirit to prompt us in our conscience. Each of us carry around a tendency to think thoughts that could lead to such horrors. And one of the deep wisdoms of Jesus' teaching is that sorrow over that, that we notice about what sin can do, and that God's comfort are things that will bless us and move us away from such awful possibilities. We need to be genuinely sorry. We need God's comfort through the forgiveness that he can bring us. We need to know that God is willing to wipe our slate clean and give us a new start. 
before we worship, I do think how to be appropriately sorry for our sin before God is something that we could all do with a bit of helpful counsel about, if I'm honest. There are three dangers around mourning sin, each of which can cut us off from the comfort that God wants to bring us as he forgives and heals us from our iniquity. The first danger is minimizing, that we don't really register just what an impact we may have had on God and on the people around us. We take it too lightly, or we minimize it, or we ignore it. We just haven't really acknowledged or seen or registered the damage that we've done. I think a good example of this from the Bible is when Herod orders the, orders the killing of the little boys shortly after the birth of Jesus. You know, Matthew 2.18 reveals the effects of the tragedy of that in this haunting statement. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. <coughs> there is no record of Herod weeping at what he did. He was a vicious and cruel ruler. What he did left an irreplaceable hole in the hearts of all of those parents. And so the starting point of, of receiving Jesus' teaching in this second beatitude is acknowledge what you have done and the impact that it has had. Acknowledge your sin. Don't minimize it. Own it. You did it. It is right and appropriate to be sorry for that. I think, so that's the first danger. The first danger is minimizing. The second danger is avoiding. You know, we avoid it. We don't sit squarely in that place of godly sorrow long enough or properly enough. We press to move on. We try to hurry out of that place of upset with ourselves. We squirm like the child sitting impatiently on the naughty step. Or worse still, we kind of excuse or deny or try to blame others. <coughs> we see the adult version of this squirming all the time in court cases where people hire legal defense to get them out of things they know that they have done wrong. So I think a, a good example of sitting squarely in the place of sorrow after committing a sin is when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. You know, Nathan the prophet went to him to expose the sin. He was shocked and then he was genuinely sorry. 2 Samuel 12, 13 records that David simply said, I have sinned before the Lord. He owned what he had done. He repented, he fasted, he prayed to God to change some of the consequences. But at the end of the seven days, he washed and brushed up and then he went and worshipped God and he moved on. David sat squarely in the sin he'd committed. He owned it and he showed appropriate sorrow. Uh, Psalm 51 is his expression of that. And it's actually a really helpful model to us for how to express being sorry at sin. Uh, I really recommend uh, you read that. Uh, if you've had a, uh, well, if you've sinned and you need to know how to say sorry. So don't minimize sin and don't avoid it. Sit in it for a little bit. Take that heat. It is right and appropriate to be sorry. And lastly, don't minimize it. Don't avoid it. Don't wallow. Don't wallow. You know, the third danger, uh, and this is kind of at the other end of the spectrum of mourning our sin, is that we allow ourselves to wallow in sorrow, as it were. And that it just goes on for ages and it goes on and on and on. Or even worse, 
that we get into a place of a self-destructive remorse, you know, a sadness that is so strong that we lose sight of the restoration that actually God wants to bring to us. Uh, this is a kind of grief that's paralyzing and it stops us from moving forward. Uh, we, can start the belie- we can even start believing the narrative that we are so bad and so far be- beyond redemption that self-destructive thinking sets in. And I think the most obvious example of this kind of sorrow is the self-destructive sorrow of Judas after he betrayed Jesus. The Bible says he was seized with remorse. But that's being sorry to the point of wishing to destroy uh, ourselves. And in fact, we know that that's what Judas did. Uh, But that shows that there's something underlying that sorrow which is really destructive, and it's not of God. So don't wallow in it. And certainly don't start telling yourself stories that you always do this and that you're beyond redemption. So my question to us all this morning uh, on this challenging beatitude, uh, the second beatitude, blessed are all who mourn for they shall be comforted. And it's to do with sin. Which of the wrong ways to mourn do we tend to find ourselves taking? Which which one of those ones do we tend to choose? Are we minimizers? Uh, If you're a minimizer, take some time to work out the impact that you've really had because of what you've done. Are you an avoider? You know, if we're an avoider, um, what we've got to do is to avoid that temptation to fast track out of the process. We need to sit in it for a bit. And yet, on the other hand, are we wallowers? If you're a wallower, permit the people around you who love you to hold you accountable for the amount of time you're giving it. Remember that the Beatitude says this, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. God has comfort for those who are truly sorry for what they have done and for those who turn to him for a new start. Now, BCC, in a minute, we're going to worship. I appreciate that my message is quite a tough message today. Uh, but let's let's all pray uh, together uh, just as we get ready, ready to worship. And this is a prayer for everybody. I, I don't know whether you're investigating faith, whether you're brand new to the Christian faith and you've just started following Jesus, or whether you've been a Christian for a long time. But this prayer is for all of us. So BCC, would you just pray with me? Father, as I reflect on my week, I pray right now that you would bring to mind anything that I may have said, thought, or done that is displeasing to you. And Father, as those things come to mind, or as that thing comes to mind, I just want to say that I'm really sorry for that. Lord, would you show me if there is a way in which I can make amends for that, in a way that doesn't make it worse? And then Father, I pray that you would forgive me and bring me your comfort from my wrongdoing and allow me to make a new start this morning. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, BCC, uh, I think it's time to worship. We worship uh, a person who came and took away our sin from us, uh, Jesus. He's the only person in history that is able to do that And we worship him for it because he sets us free. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery because it is for freedom that Jesus has come to set us free, as it says at the beginning of Galatians chapter 5. So BCC, up on your feet. It's time to move forward. God has forgiven you. 
God will bring you his comfort and it's time to worship. God bless you, BCC.